Two and a Half Admins, episode 60. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And we've got a huge list of plugs to get through. The first, you've got a webinar to plug, Alan. Yes, uh, Kyle Evans and I will be hosting uh, Enterprise Certificate Management on FreeBSD on October 28th at noon Eastern. So if you've had fun with that recent Let's Encrypt certificate rollover or just in general need to manage both regular trusted certificates that are part of the chain, but also maybe your own Active Directory or otherwise self-signed certificates, then this webinar will help you learn how to do that. And Jim, you're going to be at All Things Open very soon. That's right. All Things Open this year is partially reopening to uh, in-person presence. It's a hybrid conference this year, and I will be going in-person. The conference runs from this Sunday through Tuesday, so October 17th to 19th. And on Tuesday afternoon, I'll be delivering a 90-minute presentation on ZFS. Surprise, surprise. All right, and your customary blog post plug, Alan, is manipulating a ZFS pool from the rescue system. Yeah, uh, so if somehow you've managed to get your system in a state where you can't boot it normally. Some tips on how to use the rescue system to reconfigure your ZFS pool and get things back to the way they're supposed to be and get your system working again. So bookmark this one for next time you run into trouble. All right, well, links to that and everything else in the show notes then. Let's do a bit of news. And the one that we just have to talk about, everyone was tweeting us, expecting us to talk about it. This is the Facebook outage, which took out Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp and Oculus for six hours. Well, you know, they, they say it's it's always DNS. You thought it couldn't be DNS. It was DNS. This one looked like DNS, but the thing about that is sometimes it's not DNS. Sometimes it's BGP. This one was BGP. I, uh, somebody pushed a BGP configuration change in one of Facebook's data centers that, according to Facebook, broke its internal data center to data center routing more so than the, uh, you know, outside world stuff, but nevertheless was sufficient to bring down all of Facebook's data centers which then required somebody physically to connect to the router to, you know, reset them and blow out the bad configs, which was even more of a problem because a lot of Facebook's data centers, the locals are only hired for janitorial duties. There are no people on site with the sufficient access and expertise to plug a serial console into a router. Yeah, and I also heard problems with their uh, physical access control systems. Yes. So their key fobs to open doors depend on a Facebook server that was also down. Yep, and uh, Facebook, I think they call it Workplace. Their, uh, you know, their their internal corporate workflow application uh, was also down. Basically, everything was down. The the badging thing was extra hilarious because you know nobody has come out and published details of Facebook's physical security system. But it had to have been a not invented here syndrome kind of a thing because a normal off-the-shelf badging system, even for buildings with very large access lists, they periodically download the access list information, which is stored locally. They're not just like hitting the DB <laughs> server like every time somebody swipes their badge. So, you know, for, for all of this physical access to have gone out as well is really something. And also on the topic of not invented here syndrome – I haven't seen the hairy details on it, but I have seen folks both in Facebook and outside Facebook saying that Facebook rolled its own BGP demons. Like they're not using off-the-shelf border gateway protocol implementations either. And that may or may not have contributed to, you know, everything going awry on the day of. But it's just like, God, at some point (laughs) you have to recognize 
that you should not, no matter how large you are, just be reinventing the entire technology stack from scratch for yourself. Like maybe that's not such a good idea. And that, you know, maybe one of your DNS servers should live on somebody else's AS. <laughs> that would also be a good idea. It looked like it was DNS, but it was just because every Facebook server everywhere in the world had fallen off the internet because they just withdrew their routes for the entire autonomous system. Somebody did, on Twitter did a great animation just showing all the routes going to Facebook and then just slowly disappearing until Facebook's this little island not connected to the internet anymore. That was made by Kim Carlson uh, on Twitter. He is Paranoid Voxel. But yeah, it was, it was quite interesting to see and, and partly just to see how long it took them to come back. You know, I heard rumors of the people who are, can get in the building or in the building to, to try to fix things don't have the right access to log into the routers. And the people that do don't have connectivity to be able to get to the routers. And also, how do they not have some kind of better out of band thing? Like if you're Facebook, do you have like a 4G, like a SIM card plugged into his console server somewhere or something? Move fast, break stuff. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about the organization where the CEO and founder literally had that on a plaque for years. Although in this case, apparently it's move fast, break stuff, and don't tell anybody or we'll make you delete your Reddit account. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was also interesting to see uh, when you were live tweeting about it. Yeah, I, I really hope it's not like very directly my fault that that guy felt like he had to delete his Reddit account. Uh, you might have just thought that, you know, ah, you know, ramen porn. Like, you know, it's not like that's going to show up in the news anywhere, but... <laughs> <laughs> then I come trundling along and I don't think twice about it. Yeah, you ramen porn reported this. Yeah. <laughs> Mark wrote to us about this. He said, this outage is a prime example of why you always commit confirm. If you are locked out, the system will roll itself back in a set number of minutes. Your automation and orchestration should do its checks during this period of time and perform the confirmation for you after it's passed. Even Ubiquiti's EdgeOS and ViOS support commit confirm albeit more intrusive with a reboot. This outage was also a prime example of how automation can potentially make Butterfingers, or I suppose Butterbrain, atomic. Yeah, like anybody who's ever tried to configure a Cisco router or something has probably learned about the difference between, you know, your running config and your startup config, right? You can make changes and they apply immediately, but if you don't copy run start when you restart the thing, those changes are gone. That's a feature that you can use so that... If your new config locks you out, you just power cycle and everything's back to the way it was before. But yeah, it's like if you've ever changed the resolution settings on your monitor and then it pops up, it's like 15 second countdown. Can you still see the screen? Because if you can't, you now have no way to change the settings back, right? And so just having that same thing, you know, uh, I've done it with firewalls for years. There's a script in the examples directory in FreeBSD for apply the new firewall rules for 60 seconds and if you don't hit cancel, then it will revert them back. And so if you lock yourself out, it will roll the rules back to the old ones so that you can get in again and, you know, try again. I use at scheduling for that with firewall rules. I just I have my original firewall rules, you know, already in a file, uh, you know, copy that off to a .bak or whatever. And I, you know, put in an IP tables restore, you know, whatever firewall rules .bak for 15 minutes from now. And so that way, you know, either... I'm there in the next 15 minutes to ATRM that job or, you know, the 15 minutes or, you know, I usually do it tighter than that, like two minutes, but whatever, the time period expires and it reverts the old rule set. Yeah. I was like, IPFW can have multiple rule sets loaded at once and only one of them active. And so it's just a quick switch to switch back and forth, but same idea. Yeah. Of that 
in case this doesn't work, it's going to go back automatically. And, you know, if it does work, then I'll be there to, to, you know, cancel the countdown. So does this really come down to the fact that Facebook is still essentially a startup or at least running on infrastructure that came out of a startup? No, it's just that they, they did never plan for all of their stuff being down at once. There seems to be no excuse to not have backup DNS somewhere else. Not that it would have helped here. You would have, you know, been able to resolve Facebook's DNS and then not connect to the Facebook IP, I suppose. But yeah, but to Joe's point, I mean, you're really saying kind of the same thing that he did. They're running it like a startup. I mean, who does stuff like, you know, just lump in your DNS with everything else, you know, all in the same AS. And if anything dies, everything goes down with it and ignore the whole concept of, you know, true high availability for your DNS, who ignores that? Startups. <laughs> Startups and, you know, tech bros that don't give a crap and, you know, have not been saddled with any seniors who do give a crap. That reminds me, well, I think, was it Twitter a couple years ago where it turned out their DNS was still hosted at dyndns.org? <laughs> I missed that one. That's hilarious, if true. Yeah, the, when their DNS was down for a while. It was a, right before or after Oracle, I think, or some, who was it that bought dyndns? I think it was Oracle. It was right around that time that we discovered that, yeah, a bunch of startups, because people were familiar with DynDNS when they needed DNS hosting, that's where they went. And then it was like Twitter's DNS was hosted by DynDNS. It's like, oh my God. Yeah, Oracle bought them. But yeah, uh, up to a couple of years ago, Twitter's DNS was there until a denial of services attack or something meant Twitter was offline for like quite a while while they had to <laughs> scramble and move their DNS somewhere that could uh, was more resilient to attacks on uh, the scale of taking out Twitter. Oracle bought DYN in 2016. Yeah. According to the register, with plans to slash jobs and switch off services. Sounds about right. Yeah, because I know they killed off the free thing. That was the reason why anybody used 9DNS. At the very least, the only reason why anybody knew, you know, what the heck it was. Yeah, well, I think it, it turned out to be their business model. The service for free, you get everybody using it as, the, you know, the dynamic DNS for their home server. And when they end up at a job at a startup, they're like, yeah, we should pay Dyne to do our DNS hosting because it's got a nice API and it just works. For that matter, there were so many people throwing them like five bucks a month, you know, to redirect a real domain name to it instead of, you know, just a subdomain of, of Dyne DNS. And man, let me tell you what, I would love to take your $5 a month to do nothing but, you know, throw an A record at you. (laughs) Yes, please. But I'm not hosting your bloody email. Right, but they didn't have to. I mean, they didn't have to run, you know, web services, host web pages, deal with any significant traffic, literally just like throw an A record up for somebody. A record with a short TTL, that's all. That's it. (laughs) And again, Yes, please. I would like to provide that for $5 a month. Yeah. Okay. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. 
So go to lino.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's lino.com slash 25A. Jim, you wrote an article recently, the best part of Windows 11 is a revamped Windows subsystem for Linux. So now we're talking about the WSLG stuff with the GUI apps, and this is no longer jumping through hoops to get it installed. It's trivial. In fact, since you wrote that article, Microsoft have now announced that there's at least a preview of WSL in the Microsoft Store. So you don't even have to type any commands to get this installed now. Which is a bit of a step back. I'm not sure that right now the Windows subsystem for Linux you get from the store is going to be the same one that you get from the proper installation method, just doing WSL-install on the command line. Because things from the store are typically universal Windows platform apps, which is not the same as, you know, Win32 and proper services. And also Microsoft has been very careful to talk about what's in the store as, you know, more of a preview of things to come rather than this is just a perfectly fine way to install this now. But coming from the store means that it's decoupled from Windows, so it's much easier to update it without having to update the whole system. And that's kind of how they're selling it. It's how they're selling it. I'm not sure how close to reality that really is, to be honest. But either way, what's really interesting here is how easy it is to get going via the command line, which you're going to need if you're using it anyway. So surely everyone's going to install it that way. Yeah, exactly. Maybe at some point there will be a big draw to, you know, graphical interface installation of WSL. But even with the new WSLG stuff, you know, where you can use actual, you know, graphic and audio apps on WSL, you're still going to be launching them from the terminal. You're going to be installing them from the terminal. And there's just not, at least yet, a whole lot of use case for anybody who's not comfortable with the terminal to go with the Windows subsystem for Linux. Now, that's not to say that you can't be completely averse to the command line and still thrive in a proper Linux desktop environment. But specifically, if you're trying to graft the Linux stuff on top of Windows with WSL, yeah, you're going to need to be a CLI user. So, Alan, do you have any interest in using WSL? Because I was thinking about this. You're a FreeBSD user, but you also are a Windows user, right, for gaming and stuff. Yeah, on my Windows systems going Back to Windows XP, I've generally had a bunch of the like GNU Win32 tools installed so that at the Windows command line, I'd had, you know, grep and sort and a couple of the basic commands. Although the Linux sort command has different command line flights than the FreeBSD one, and it always just drives me up the wall. So yeah, there are times where I use the Linux style command line tools on Windows and something like WSL might be helpful there. I've played a little bit with the, the SSH client that's built into Windows, although I still find myself using Putty because it's what I've been doing for 25 years now. Not quite 25, but more than 20 years. I've heard that key management is easier with WSL versus Putty. Well, I guess if you use SSH agent instead of the Pi agent or whatever, how do you pronounce the, the Putty version? Yeah, um, because a bunch of different command line tools can all access that same you know, SSH agent socket rather than the PuTTY one is pretty much specific to the PuTTY and its command line tools. Yeah, I think it mostly depends on your workflow. If you're content with the way PuTTY exposes SSH to Windows, which basically is, you know, it's very window driven, like the PuTTY window comes up and you very specifically launch SSH sessions into and out of the PuTTY window. It's not really a command line thing at all. Like the command line doesn't happen until after you're connected. There are command line tools for PuTTY. Like I think one of them is called PLink. There's also like a, an SCP client from Putty 
they don't have graphical versions uh, because I've used that in the past for an SVN client to have it use the PuTTY SSH client and connect with my the, the key agent I have uh, from PuTTY to be able to do SVN checkouts and so on authenticated with my SSH key. So PuTTY can do that. But yeah, most of the time if I'm on Windows, the point is I'm opening a terminal like you would open a shell terminal on your Linux graphical desktop and then it's going to the machine. It's just in this case, it's not this machine, it's that machine, but it doesn't really make a difference. If you're DevOpsy, I, I think it makes a big difference also. It's not even necessarily so much about the SSH itself, in my opinion, as if you're trying to do DevOpsy stuff from WSL, then you're going to be already you know, in a bash environment issuing remote commands to a bash or at least, you know, born shell environment on the other side, like it all makes sense on both sides. You're all speaking the same language. You can do the same things with, you know, the the Windows port of SSH on the command line or, you know, the, the putty CLI tools. But now if you do any kind of command processing or redirection, you know, chaining from one to the other, like you have to keep it straight in your head that you're speaking, you know, Windows CMD on this side and you're speaking bash or born on the remote side. Ew. The escaping is especially terrible on Windows and so on. So yeah, uh, I could definitely see the advantage if, if I was doing that of having a regular bash shell. My setup's kind of weird because I have my FreeBSD desktop where I actually do most of my work from. And so if I'm on the Windows box, I'm using PuTTY to SSH to my FreeBSD desktop where I have my shell and all my tools in my home directory and, and do the work. So basically, even my desktop sometimes gets treated like it was a server. That was how I did all my work, you know, before I switched to desktop Ubuntu. Um, I was first FreeBSD and then Debian and then Ubuntu in the server room for more than a decade. And, you know, firmly Windows on the desktop and I had no plans to switch. Uh, the only reason I finally did switch to Linux was uh, on the desktop was, you know, literally because of Ubuntu and because a friend was trying to quit using their Mac and wanted an alternative and hated Windows. And a different friend had been like, have you looked at Ubuntu Feisty Fawn? Like, it's pretty sweet. So I just installed it on a spare laptop literally to try to lure my friend away from the Macintosh. And, you know, as I was installing it, even just the, the whole thing blew me away. I was like, this is literally easier to use than Windows is. And like a week later, I'd, I'd switched my home workstation, my primary home workstation over. And then about three weeks after that, I, I switched over, you know, my my work workstations, like, you know, an office away from home or whatever. All right. Well, let's talk about Vert Manager then, because that is the killer app for WSLG as far as you're concerned, Jim. Absolutely. I use Vert Manager to manage all the VMs on all of the hosts I'm responsible for. This is the thing I think not enough people know about. In addition to managing virtual machines on your local host, you can connect other machines by SSH, you know, with shared keys, and you can manage all of their virtual machines as well, including, you know, direct console windows, fully graphical console windows. And that was a real pain in the butt to deal with for clients that were large enough to have their own IT staff, but who did not have, you know, Linux desktops. You could get Vert Manager going by a combination of WSL and um, using, you know, like a uh, MOBA X term or something else with a built-in Windows X11 server. But the whole thing was always just very clunky and weird and crappy and not fun to deal with. And WSLG is an enormous improvement. You know, you just apt install Vert Manager and run Vert Manager and you're good to go. Everything works. Hilariously, you know, one of the VMs on 
my main workstation is a Hackintosh that I needed to use to produce charts in Keynote, God help me, for uh, Ars Technica articles. And the reason that I had the Hackintosh VM is I had a MacBook Air. I'd bought it to be able to test Mac-only things with. I'd never really intended to use it for production. It's too small to really want to actually try to produce graphic content on it. But, you know, also just it's a freaking Mac. So I'm like, well, I want to remote control this thing so that I can have more resolution to work with and a proper mouse and keyboard and all that. But I go looking through it. And I'm like, oh, my God, like VNC is how people remote control Macs. Like I, this is not just you know, me assuming that, like, I'm Googling it and looking and everybody's talking about, you know, VNC this, VNC that. So I'm stuck with trying to remote control this thing with VNC over Wi-Fi because, you know, the damn thing doesn't have an Ethernet port either. Even for just entering values in what amounts to a spreadsheet, it was terrible. You know, you'd type something in and it might or might not actually update because VNC and the... So anyway, point is... I made a Hackintosh VM, and that worked fine. But when I was testing Vert Manager on WSLG, I did that, uh, you know, on my framework laptop, and I brought up the Hackintosh VM, and I went to YouTube on the Hackintosh that I've got a console window, you know, through via SSH to this other laptop, and it, it's flawless, you know. There's no frames dropped. The audio's not glitchy. Everything is just perfect. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. This is a way better experience than I could have had remote controlling the actual bare metal Mac. With that said, I've found out since then there is another better option. If you've ever heard of No Machine, which is frequently used by, you know, Linux desktop folks for remote control, uh, No Machine also has a Windows port, which I knew, and also a Mac OS port, which I didn't know until just like a few days ago. Somebody told me on Twitter. So if you've got a Mac and you need to remote control it, check out No Machine. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets. Training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills? Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then. But first of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or any feedback, show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is exactly what Chris has done. He writes, At work, I have a super micro server running TrueNAS Core that we're using for storing our backups. The drive bays are fully populated and the storage now has crept up to a very full point, 92%. Could you give me a recommendation on how to expand this server or the pool? And he gives us the server stats and he's got 60 12 terabyte Seagate drives, five times RAID Z2 with 12 drives each with 480 terabytes total, but only 35 terabytes free. 
Yeah. So at first, my recommendation was, was, you know, if you're out of drive bays, you can swap out the drives for bigger drives. But at 12 terabytes, there's not many bigger drives you can get. So with that type of setup, I suggest your best bet is to get an expansion shelf. So basically another chassis, usually there you can get, I'd go with the 4U1 and they hold somewhere between 30 uh, and 60 more drives. And it'll have an external SAS cable that would connect back to the server. Hopefully you have a free PCIe slot and you can put another LSI uh, controller with an external port or two on it. And then basically you'll connect a bunch more drives. However much space you think you need, get a chassis big enough for twice that and fill it up half now and half later. And yeah, just add a couple more RAID Z2s to your existing pool. So maybe start by buying 24 more drives and adding two more VDEVs to your existing pool. And uh, once you do the Z pool add, the extra space will just show up and be usable right away. I want to stress, uh, don't skimp on the cable. You're going to be cabling all of these VDEVs in this other chassis to your you know, primary chassis that has the CPU and RAM and everything else on it. It's just going to be, you know, it boils down to, you know, one, it's not eSATA, but the equivalent, you know, between these boxes. And if you lose that cable, you lose all the VDEVs in the other box and, you know, the pool does nasty things also. Now, usually that failure is going to be one that will resolve itself, you know, after a reboot with the cable resecured. That's not something that you really want to play games with. Buy a good cable to the best of your ability, and I would recommend, like, actively testing your cabling in place. Touch it, <laughs> vibrate it, shake things around a little, because that is one single failure point that can bring your whole pool down with it. I'm normally one of the people that has an aversion to paying $80 for one bloody cable, but for the SAS cable, it's definitely worth it. I've literally experienced a thing where somebody else was in the rack doing some other cabling, and they bumped the the SAS cable a little too much and suddenly 40 drives disappear from my pool at once. Luckily, ZFS will deal with that. It will basically suspend the pool and freeze it. It'll tell you what's wrong. And once you reconnect the cable, you can just do ZPool clear in the pool name and it will reopen all the VDEVs and continue where it was and no data gets lost, nothing bad happens. And it'll kick off a scrub to make sure that nothing got missed. But that's still going to be a very bad day. And I assume you can hear the capitals in my voice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So definitely you want a good cable and you want to route it in a way where it's not going to be getting bumped all the time and, and so on. But the whole point of ZFS is that adding more storage to it was meant to be like adding more RAM to a server, right? You plug it in and you just, it starts working. There's one extra step with, with Trinaz where you go in the GUI and add the disk to the pool or whatever, but there's not all this crazy stuff that you would have to do with hardware raid or whatever to try to expand the pool uh, in ZFS. You would just be like, here are 24 more disks as two VDEVs, and then whammo, you got the extra space and you can start using it right away. I will mention one other thing, though, which is that uh, just because of the expense, typically, um, a 4U JBOD chassis is not a cheap item. Very frequently, by the time you buy the, you know, the shelf with the power supply and all the other stuff and then stuff that drives in it, the difference in cost between that and another actual server tends to be pretty minuscule. If you might benefit from having twice the CPU cores, twice the RAM, you know, more PCIe bandwidth, the whole nine, if if you can handle the idea of, you know, having your shares be split between two boxes rather than the one, it might be a better idea to just buy another server like the first one. 
and federate your storage shares between the two of them. In particular, you said this is for backups. So, you know, if you're backing up a bunch of separate machines with Veeam or whatever, Veeam shouldn't really have a problem saying, you know, these VMs now back up to this other backup server instead. Because, yeah, like like Jim said, the chassis and all the bits is probably going to be around at least $2,000. And, you know, it's not that much more to add just another motherboard CPU and RAM to that chassis instead and get a whole separate server that means that if something does go wrong, only half of your store, your backups are down instead of all of them. Alan, you said that 12 terabytes is about as big as you can get these days. Well, no, but it's it's around the price point for the, the, the best price per gigabyte. Right. The 18 and 20 terabyte drives are cost a premium and are sometimes really hard to get. Like they're out of stock all the damn time. Yeah, mostly that. The prices I, I've seen have not been all that bad, but the availability is another story. More importantly, though, you know, we're we're not talking about a box with three or four drives in it. You know, we're talking about somebody that's got a 60 drive server populated with 12 terabyte drives. How long do you think it's going to take you to individually, you know, pull, replace and resilver 60 times? And each one of these drives is 92 percent full. He'd have to do at least 12 of them just to get any additional space. Yeah. Well, what I was thinking was. If you're going to go to the hassle of building a second server, you may as well put some 18s or 20s in now to future-proof it. If you can get them. Whether it's a separate server or, or for that matter, whether it is just, you know, a, another a JBOD shelf, either way, yeah, buy the right drives for it. You can buy bigger drives. They don't need to match what was, you know, in the pool prior. The point is just that it's not a practical recommendation to say, "Hey, you know, your sixty disk, uh, your sixty disk server with twelve terabyte drives. What you really ought to do is just yank every one of those individually and replace it with an eighteen terabyte drive." Nah. When I read the first half of the question, I was like, "Oh, right. So he's got a server with like twelve drive bays, and they're full of four terabyte drives. Yeah, he can start swapping them out with some twelves and and get lots more space and not have." you know, much to worry about. But then it's like, oh, 60 12 terabyte drives. Uh, yeah, you want a JBOD or like Jim said, a whole separate server. Other pro tips I have for people is start planning buying that extra shell for that second server when your pool is 60% full, not when it's 92% full. Because when you call your hardware vendor, whether it's, you know, super micro or reseller like Silicon Mechanics or or Dell or whoever, and they're like, yeah, um, there's a eight week waiting list for 12 terabyte hard drives. You don't want to be like, well, we're going to hit 100% full before we get to eight weeks. <laughs> and then, you know, We've seen with the chip shortages and so on, you can just get ridiculous things or even the, sh- the shipping problems lately with the lack of shipping containers and so on. It can end up taking a lot longer than you think to get those parts in and before you can get them set up and, and get them in production. Can confirm these days, sometimes you're a couple of months out on the server, let alone the drives. Yeah, I, I've definitely I've got a customer that's got all the drives and the JBUD sitting there and they couldn't get a CPU to actually build a head for Weeks and weeks, especially if you're picky. Now, if you're just willing to, you know, get whatever it is Supermicro is actually shipping today, that's one thing. But if you're like, well, you know, I've done all my research and I know what processor I want, and you know, it's this particular, you know, brand new Epic, you know, with X cores, you know, yada yada yada, that might take you longer. Now, that's not saying AMD is always longer to ship than Intel or any kind of crap like that. I'm just saying, you know, the more you're like, I have a specific thing that I need, the worse problems you may have getting that on a timely basis. Right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. You can find me at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.